everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I uh, was asking my wife Lisa what I should talk about in this little intro, and she was like, well, don't you normally just make up something about etymology? Why don't you do that? And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. The only problem is, nobody knows for sure which one is etymology and which one is entomology. One of them is insects, and I do often make things up about bees, and one of them is words, and I often make stuff up about words. And experts disagree about which word means which. So, to hedge my bets, uh, you ever wonder why a fly is called a fly, but an ant is not called a walk? Seems like bullshit to me. And there you have it. A thing I made up about etymology, whichever one that is. So, this week we've got kind of a different show for you guys. A couple of weeks ago, Ilana Levin had me as a guest on her show, Graphic Policy Radio, and we talked about the latest season of the TV show Young Justice, and that was a lot of fun. And since Young Justice is a TV show that gets some of its source material from the original Teen Titans run, and gets some of its other source material and the name of the series from a late 90s comic book that is kind of that era's version of the Teen Titans, I thought it might be fun to read that comic book and then have Ilana as a guest on my show and talk about that comic. And I was half right. It was a lot of fun to have Ilana as a guest and talk about the comic, and you'll hear that conversation later. As to whether it was a good idea to read that comic, well, I'll let you be the judge of that. So, without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Richard Passant. Jericho got rid of his mutton chops. Heck of a job at the barber shop. A full issue without DFC and Gar Logan? Let's celebrate with a few Captain Morgan. Dick needs time for psychoanalysis. Here is this issue's synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Richard. Young Justice, number one. September, 1998. Young. Just. Us. Written by Peter David. Drotted by Todd Nock. Inkted by Larry Stucker. Letterded by Ken Lopez, colorded by Jason Wright and Digital Chameleon, and edited by Eddie Berganza. Young Justice Roll Call Robin, the Tim Drake one, Superboy, the Connor Kent one, and Impulse, the Bart Allen one. Some context for this issue The year was 1998. The Clintons were in the White House, and sun-dried tomatoes were in everything else. The new Titan series had concluded two years ago, and our nation's youth was hungry for two things. Potato chips that caused anal leakage, and new teenage superhero content. 
Which is why young comics readers' eyes were as wide as their pant legs when a new miniseries called A World Without Grown-Ups hit the stands. The series featured three of DC's most popular teenage sidekicks, Robin, Superboy, and Impulse, teaming up to rescue their adult counterparts from the parallel universe where they had been trapped by a shitty kid's birthday wish. After being rescued, the grown-up do-gooders were so grateful that they gifted their young saviors their old headquarters in Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, to use as their new clubhouse. After seeing the sales of the miniseries, the purportedly grown-up publishers at DC Comics were so grateful that they gifted the trendy teenage trio their own ongoing title. Gadzooks! Considering that this book came out three and a half decades later than the last time a trio of teenage sidekicks came together to form a team, will this comic have a more progressive attitude towards women characters? How long will this teenage team stay together? And how will these young heroes demonstrate that they have the maturity to come out of their mentor shadows and operate as an independent crime-fighting unit? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope. 55 issues, which is two issues longer than the original Teen Titans run. And by spray-painting Hanson Bites on an android's tummy. Tim Drake, a.k.a. Robin, sits in an alleyway in a state of shock. He is dismayed to find that his left hand has been eaten by cockroaches and replaced with a batarang. Batman stands behind him and gruffly suggests that he might want to consider growing a beard. Connor Kent, a.k.a. Superboy, is flying over a melting cityscape with Superman, when suddenly, flaming angel wings sprout out of his back for no apparent reason. Superman suggests that this is the result of Superboy adopting a holier-than-thou attitude. Bart Allen, a.k.a. Impulse, is running around in front of a purple explodey background. He's freaked out because he sees a bunch of different versions of himself with different personalities and outfits, one of which is a giant hulking monster with blue skin who speaks in a grammatically simplified version of English with no pronouns and refers to humans as puny. This version of Impulse does not disclose his attitude towards beans, but I'm willing to stipulate that it is likely favorable. Suddenly, all three heroes wake up in their sleeping bags, on the floor of the abandoned JLA headquarters in Happy Harbor. The scenes we just witnessed were their nightmares. Robin shares the details of his dream and adds that it was as though a malevolent, unseen being had just taken over the events of his life. Hi, Peter David. Impulse and Superboy pretend not to know what he's talking about and claim that they were not having any dreams. Meanwhile, at the site of a nearby archaeological excavation, Professor Nina Dowd digs up what appears to be an ancient high-tech radial tire. When she touches it, there is a huge flash of light. A few seconds later, when their vision clears, Professor Dowd's assistants seem alarmed at what has occurred and hurry to call the authorities. Back at the former JLA headquarters, Impulse and Superboy are bored. Connor whines about it and threatens to leave, while Bart takes a more proactive stance. He finds an old can of spray paint and starts dropping shitty tags on everything, including his teammates. He also writes Hanson Bites on a statue of the android former Justice League member Red Tornado. 
Superboy appreciates the room's newly graffitied aesthetic, but both he and Robin are exasperated by their teammates' antics. Robin reprimands Impulse and lectures him that he should be more mature. Impulse is like, Yeah, well if we're already fighting, then it seems like maybe this whole team thing is a bad idea. The three of us don't have anything in common. I mean, other than our age, gender, life goals, vocation, and general sartorial aesthetic. I mean, what possible literary conceit could someone use to justify grouping us together as a team? Robin and Superboy have no answer for this question. But the statue of Red Tornado pipes up and is like, I'm so glad you asked. I think a writer might view you three as representations of the Freudian concepts of id, ego, and superego. Impulse, you grew up in a computer simulation in the future and have no concept of danger. You act immediately out of instinct. You represent the id. Superboy, you were a clone who was raised in a vat. You have been taught the basics of morality and can make judgment calls, but none of your knowledge has been gained from first-hand experience. You are the ego. Robin, you are a real stick in the mud, and since Batman trained you, you probably think you know what the right thing to do is all the time. You are the super ego. Robin is like, oh, okay, so I guess that's gonna be the subtext of this comic series. The statue of Red Tornado is like, I don't think we can call it subtext now that I said it out loud. Fair point. Impulse is like, so I'm guessing you're not a statue? Red Tornado is like, nope. Robin is like, then why are you hanging out here pretending to be a statue? Red Tornado is like, I got tired of not having any feelings, so I came here and turned myself off. But listening to you three assholes, I realized I did have feelings after all. The feeling of annoyance. So I turned myself back on. Impulse is like, okay, I wasn't really listening to whatever it is you just said, but I just saw on some monitors that something's going on at an archaeological dig near here. Let's go check that out. Red Tornado is like, yes, I certainly am capable of a feeling. I must be very alive, indeed. The gang heads out to the dig site. When they arrive, they find that the scene of the incident is surrounded by media, which is being kept at bay by two heavily guarded armed government agents named Donald Fight and Ashido Mad. Get it? Fight and Mad? Hey, good news, Red Tornado. Turns out I'm alive, too. Donald and Ashido tell the heroes and the media to go away. But nobody does, even when they shoot some of the video cameras. Impulse runs down to where we last saw Professor Dowd and finds that there's a big blue crystal there. Ishido is upset that Impulse ignored him, so he shoots at him. Superboy intervenes, and it appears that there's about to be a showdown of some sort, but then Impulse vibrates his head at super speed and sticks it inside of the crystal, and everyone gets distracted because 1. That is a weird thing to do, and B. It results in a giant explosion. When the smoke clears a few seconds later, Impulse is fine, and the crystal he stuck his head into is gone. In its place is the missing Professor Nina Dowd. Sort of. 
See, the last time we had seen Professor Dowd, she had been wearing the fairly, by comic book standards, conservative outfit of khaki shorts, a white t-shirt, and a vest. She's now wearing a tight pink spandex bodysuit with alien circuitry running down the arms and legs. She also has whiskers drawn on her face, and for some reason little cat ears are poking up from under her now voluminous hair. But I'm burying the lead here. She also has grown implausibly large breasts. We can't see them on panel, but nobody will shut up about them. Also, she announces that she would like to now be called the Mighty Endowed. Get it? Because her name was Endowed, and now she has big boobs? Yeah. She gives a little speech about how she is very powerful, and Superboy is very excited about the idea of fighting her, but then she falls over because her breasts are too large for her to stand up. Now that the threat of a lady talking has passed, the media move in to interview our heroes about their... victory? I mean, they didn't actually do anything but stand there and make comments about her breasts, and she didn't do anything except for say that she was strong and then fall over, but... okay. A reporter from an MTV stand-in called CDTV tells the two government agents that they should let the, quote, Teen Titans, end quote, investigate further. Impulse is like, we're not the Teen Titans. The reporter is like, okay, the Young Justice League of America? Impulse is like, no, we're young, but we're just us and a C-minus Abbott and Costello routine ensues, which results in both the name of this issue and the name of this series. With the government agent's blessing, the gang starts poking around the dig site, ignoring the mighty endowed, who is still lying face down, unable to stand up. Robin finds the high-tech alien tire that triggered Professor Dow's transformation and asks Superboy to see if he can unearth it. After some perfunctory complaining, Superboy does as Robin asks, and finds that the wheel is attached to an enormous, fancy, five-wheeled, three-seated motorcycle. I know the number of tires and seats stretches the traditional definition of motorcycle a little, but you know what? Fuck it. If a Honda Goldwing, the barca lounger of the freeways, gets to call itself a motorcycle, then so does this thing. Superboy calls the vehicle the Supercycle after himself, which is probably for the best because it looks a lot like the vehicle called the Supercycle that the Forever People used to ride around in. The gang bickers about the name for a second, then Superboy makes another boob joke, and Robin bangs his head on the Supercycle's handlebars in exasperation. When his forehead impacts the vehicle, the Supercycle turns itself on and straps a safety belt onto Robin. Impulse and Superboy try to free their teammate, but to no avail, and a few seconds later, the Supercycle hurls itself skyward, taking the trio of terrified teens with it. The end. Yeah, so basically, the plot of this comic is three very powerful teenage boys find a magic flying motorcycle that makes women's breasts bigger. Huh. I wonder who the target demographic for this book could possibly have been. And 
my good-for-many-things brother, Cory, accidentally drank too many energy drinks, perhaps inspired by the comic that we're reading today, and ended up vibrating on a different frequency with the rest of the universe, so he's stuck in some kind of a, I don't know, Jinko jeans dimension right now. <laughs> Hopefully he'll be able to make it back by next week. But in the meantime, we are fortunate to be joined by Elon Eleven. She is the host of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet, a podcast where they talk to comic creators and ask guest experts about comics and comic-adjacent media through a socially engaged lens. Ilana also hosts its spin-off podcast, Deep Space Dive, where they examine the themes in Star Trek's best and most political show, Deep Space Nine. Also, Ilana professes to tweet a little bit too much, although I think it's probably about the right amount. <laughs> Ilana, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. I would like to start off by apologizing for making you read this comic book. Oh, no, no. It was due time. It was due time. <laughs> and I've always loved having you on my podcast. And so I was so excited to have the invitation to come on to yours. I think I've also have become someone who people are like, oh, I guess it's time we have to talk about Peter David now. I guess Ilana <laughs> can do that. And usually it's about X-Men stuff. So I'd never read his um, DC work at all until this moment forced that to happen. And by this moment, technically you do mean me. So once again, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so thankful that you were able to join us and have this chat with us. So, I mean, we should probably just jump in and start talking about this book. So, in very general terms, what do you think of this comic? Oh boy. Well, I'm glad I read it. I don't think it's good. There mm. are moments that are so out there that it's entertaining in and of itself. And, you know, frankly, I know that this series is really beloved by so many comics fans, especially people like five to 10 years younger than me. So I feel like I have a deeper and better understanding into the millennials now as a result of this <laughs> and their particular questionable aesthetics. So, mm, yeah, I was very struck by the art in this comic book and mm -hmm. not in a particularly good way, I gotta say. <laughs> there is so much about it that just seems so very specifically 1998, like both where comics were and where society was, that it's really interesting to read it in that regard. And also yeah. to like kind of see what it would be like if the original Teen Titans series had come out then instead of when it did, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting, like to put this book in conversation with both like Brave and the Bold number 54, where the original Teen Titans first debuted. There are a lot of similarities in terms of kind of era swapped versions of each other. And I feel like that book was as mid 60s as this book is late 90s. So it was mm -hmm. interesting in that context for me to reread. But uh, yeah, there's a lot about the sensibilities of this comic, both in the writing and the art that just seem very specifically dated. 
in some ways, it's kind of nice to talk about something being very of its time in a way that isn't specifically racist and <laughs> sexist, although there is certainly a lot of sexism in the book. Which yeah, we will, I was going to say. Yeah, definitely get to. I mean, we, we also I know we both talked about rewatching the first episode of Young Justice, the TV show as part of this. And what was fascinating mm-hmm. to me is I had forgot because I don't think I'd seen the premiere in order. Like, I feel like I'd seen that show out of order largely until I started covering the more recent seasons on my own podcast. But like. There's literally no women in the first episode of that TV show. And of course, that show expands its cast to include women very quickly. But the Mm -hmm. idea that you would have a debut episode with no women at all is a little bit like, people do that? And with this comic, it's also like, I mean, there are women in it, but are there really? (laughs) And not as characters, more as props and sight gags. Exactly. Inexplicable even at, at times. But yeah, like this was a period where I wasn't reading superhero books, combination of having no money because I was in college. And also the art was so fucking heinous, I couldn't mm-hmm. make myself do it. And I know that there's like actively a lot of people who are like, I love this art. And to me, I think the thing that might just be such a big turnoff is it doesn't it kind of remind you a little bit of like Dragon Ball Z? Yes. And like, I'm not against having an anime influence or manga influence in your art. Like, There are plenty of artists working in America or Europe that have that influence on their art and their art looks okay. But this particular kind of cartoony, it just doesn't work for me because people look just a little bit too deformed. Yeah, that was something that I was having some trouble with. And I kept trying to recontextualize it in a way that would let me appreciate it Mm. on some level. Yeah, it is definitely not my preferred type of art specifically the way that he draws hands really yes, bothers me I have, a note, I have a note about what the because about the here's the thing like i love some gestural hands like i've got a literal like jack kirby hand tattooed on my arm but this isn't that sort of like strange but beautifully cubist kind of exaggerated hand this is like everybody has talons instead of hands and they yes. look odd to me on human beings agreed it's difficult for me to appreciate this kind of art in specifically in a superhero comic book. But when you look at like where comics were at the time, I think this is really strongly, obviously influenced by like J. Scott Campbell, who I'm also not a huge fan of. Yeah. And I I don't know, I, I kept trying to find influences that I did like in it. And the way that I was able to like kind of uh, force the medicine down for myself was like, (laughs) well, it kind of looks like maybe it is Evan Dorkin doing a parody of J. Scott Campbell. Oh, And in that context, there were certain panels that really worked for me. I'm going to read it with that lens because I do appreciate his work. I do, too. Or like I kept trying to think like, well, OK, it took me a while to adjust when I first started reading stuff by like Paris Cullen or, or somebody like that who had a more cartoony influence in their work, like the early Blue Devil stuff. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to adjust to that in a superhero comic, but it was a style that I did eventually end up really appreciating. And so I kept waiting for that to happen with this. And I honestly was just never totally able to make the adjustment. It was like trying to read an energy drink. Yeah, for real. I mean, the entire, I know we're going to talk about the timestamp, but this entire issue is a timestamp. It so very much is. Are you reading a digital copy of it, right? I am. So you didn't have access to the ads that were on it? 
No. Oh, boy. This is exciting. Okay, so the back cover ad is a milk ad featuring Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, my God. It's a specific kind of milk ad, kids. You have to understand this is a milk ad within which Buffy has a milk mustache. Mm -hmm. The interior back cover art is an ad for Jinko sneakers when they were trying to expand their rave clothing empire to glow in the dark footwear. And it just felt so right to see that at the end of this comic book. Yeah, because those people in that comic are wearing Jinkos. I mean, the women in it aren't wearing Jinkos. They're really not wearing clothing. But the the men, mm-hmm. the, you know, that in their casual wear, these men, these these boys would be wearing the Jinkos. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in a certain sense, the boys in this comic practically are Jinko jeans. You mentioned that you were a fan of Peter David's writing. It's complicated. So. Growing up as an X-Men fan, his run on X-Factor, that was my comic that I just really loved and followed. That 90s run that he had, because while I might be Ilana Brooklyn on Twitter, I am actually from the DC area. And the fact that they were the governmental team and the fact that they were located in like DC where I knew where things were... And the fact that they were not the big brand name characters, like those were all things that really spoke to me because they were like, it felt really political. The humor was very pop culture conscious. And also I was like 13. So I I liked, it made me feel smart as a 13 year old. I actually had a very similar relationship to that book. That was my X-Men book that I picked up at that Mm -hmm. era. I would dabble in the others, but they were less accessible to me because I didn't have all of the backstory for the X-Men. And so jumping in with the relaunch of that book with the Larry Stroman art, which was so cool looking and also, you know, very stylized and very Mm -hmm. different, but in a way that totally worked for me. Yes, it was. It looked like fashion illustrations. Larry Stroman looks like fashion illustrations. Mm hmm. And I really liked that book. And I also specifically really enjoyed Peter David's sense of humor in that book, Mm -hmm. which is why it was surprising for me to pick up this book and see it's definitely Peter David's sense of humor. But it's like all Peter David's sense of humor (laughs) with with X Factor. I feel like he would use his sense of humor to lighten the mood occasionally as you are dealing with a storyline that is like intense or stressful or has emotions or has other things going in it. It would add flavor to like the action or the pathos. With this, it's like there's no starch. It's just a big pile of salt and spices. And Mm -hmm. it it was kind of exhausting. It's extremely contextless for a first issue. I kept being like, was there a series that was setting this up super clearly that I just like? There was a series that set up how they got together. It was called A World Without Grownups, and it was pretty similar to the storyline that was in the Young Justice cartoon, cartoon right, The right. World Without Grownups. And that led right into this book and kind of launched it. But that series wasn't by Peter David. And in some ways, the opening three pages to this book, it is three splash pages, one featuring each of the characters, and it is so self-referential. It is Peter David being both kind of self-aggrandizing in his Mm self-effacingness. Like he's making fun of himself, but he's clearly centering himself as the star of the book, kind of. Yes, yes. And he is so far down his own Freudian analysis hole in this issue. Like 
the thing that made me at first think that maybe I would enjoy this comic was like one of the, like, what is it? Like the first page is Robin having an extremely Freudian nightmare that I'm completely here for because like, what is Robin for if not for that? Mm -hmm. But I guess I know less about Superboy as he existed in this time period and very little about Impulse. So seeing them have presumably Freudian nightmares was less interesting to me. But then he straight up does this thing where like Red Tornado tells you the reader, each one of you represents a part of <laughs> Freud's, like the ego, super ego and id. Let me explain this to you, children. I know. It's an interesting technique to use if you're writing the book, but I feel like that should be his thing that he is using for the writing, not part of the narration, you know? Like when Grant Morrison took over the Justice League, that was around the same time as this book came out. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do this thing where he had each of the superheroes in the Justice League represent a different member of the classic Greek pantheon. And if you read those books, like bringing that to it, it's like, oh, that's what he's doing there. But like at no point does Superman say, well, you know, I'm a lot like Zeus. With this, it's just like right out of the gate. He just hits you over the head with this is what I am doing and this is why I am doing it. And this is why I have chosen these characters. And yeah, with the opening pages, their nightmares that they were having. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's even trying to bring the Freudian analysis to that. It's just different stories that he has written, like with Robin getting his hand eaten by killer cockroaches and replaced with a batarang. That is something that he did to Aquaman when he was writing Aquaman. He had his arm get eaten by piranhas and put a harpoon on it. Then with the oh. Superboy one, when he grows like angel wings, he made Supergirl. He retconned her backstory that she was an angel or something in ways that I totally don't understand because I didn't actually read those books. No. But then the third one is Impulse. And he has him like, oh, you just need to incorporate all the different aspects of your personality. And he has him turn into the Incredible Hulk. And that was when Peter David He's was writing, writing the, the Hulk. Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like this little in-joke about his own career just superimposed onto these characters in a way that, I mean, it was funny as a joke, but... The tone of the book, it's so odd to me that it takes place within the DC universe. It clearly is centering itself as a humor book. Yeah. But existing in continuity with the rest of the superhero stuff with characters that are being used so differently in other books that uh -huh. it, it caused a kind of dissonance in my brain when I was trying to absorb the information in it. Well, that was really smart to pick up how these are references to the stories he's told about other characters. But the thing that I, the thing I was thinking about with the, his Freudian piece is like him hitting you over the head with it is because his audience is like a 13 year old. And wouldn't you feel like a smart 13 year old for having read a comic in which they explain to you basic Freudian theory, even if they don't do a good job of it? I would have felt like a very smart 13 year old. I absolutely would have. And I think if I had read this when I was 13, I would have a very different reaction to yep. it. I think that is the target demographic for it. And specifically a 13 year old in 1998. <laughs> exactly. Which we were not. And so. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think probably it is a more successful book on that score. And that is probably one of the, the parallels to the original Teen Titans first appearance is it is written for a younger demographic than the other superhero books are. Yeah. The way they go about that is totally different because it is a totally different era. But yeah, no, when I was 13, I thought Dennis Miller was hilarious and the same kind <laughs> of self-congratulatory, I understand that reference, aren't I clever kind of way. That yeah. It wasn't until re-listening to that stuff 
much more recently that I was like, oh, there's no actual punchlines there. (laughs) Yeah, I do have to say, though, like the first page of your comic being Robin having a castration nightmare is kind of like a bold choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I appreciate Batman saying, have you ever considered growing a beard, especially in context of the fact that the comics now in the year 2022 are still like, I guess you're 16, I guess, (laughs) forever. And maybe we'll let you finish growing up, but maybe never. It's like, well, I don't know. I guess he probably still can't to Mm. this day. But of course, Batman is there to berate him for this. It's like, here's your father figure asking you, why can't you be a man? Well, I always appreciate the more dickish version of Batman that you get in comics that are told from a Robin's perspective. Like, this is a different Robin than the one that's from the original Teen Titans is the Tim Drake one. But yeah, yeah, I like the fact that you get a different view of them and when it centers on a different character. So yeah, that totally works. I hadn't even picked up on the beard thing. I thought he was just making the in-joke that at the same time as he took off Aquaman's harpoon hand, he gave him a beard. Yeah. But I think it works in both contexts. It's... It's a lot of puberty horror, right? Superman growing his fire wings when Superman says it was inevitable, Superboy, as in like these changes that are, he's saying like these changes that are happening to your body are happening and you can't control them. Like, so that's two pages of puberty. The third page, his high speed changes, his body is changing so rapidly Mm. yet again, just page after page of puberty horror. Well, and I mean, that might explain some of the art if this is like these characters experiencing (laughs) the body horror of puberty, like your own self-image is this warped monster that is part toddler, part pro wrestler. Yes. Oh, my God. You're right. That is a good description, though. Like part toddler, part pro wrestler. They have the deformed child thing that's sort of like a Dragon Ball Z baby heads. But Mm -hmm. then the the weird wrestler exaggerate. You nailed it. touches of humor that really did work for me in this. It wasn't that the jokes were bad. It was that I wished that there was some heart or some character development behind the jokes, but they are all just kind of jokes that are taken on their own surface level. I liked the asides like the professor is from MacGuffin University. Like I was like, oh, Yeah. yeah, that's cute. But there were times when the humor, rather than serving the story, I felt like undercut it even further. Like when you have mm-hmm. Tim Drake say stuff like Superboy says to him, who died and put you in charge? And his response is, oh, don't even go there. Like <laughs> that is him referring to the fact that his mom died recently. Oh, God. And his dad, I think, died in the comics, too. No, I don't think his dad died yet. His dad died in 52. OK, but yeah, his mom. I, just died. I couldn't keep okay. track of that. Having him be that flippant and that glib about that, I understand that the comic is embracing kind of the zeitgeist of cynical, nihilistic humor, which was really popular back then. It really was. You know, it's funny, though, I didn't think to question why is Robin in charge, because we are so used to Robin being in charge by now. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just the role he plays in these teen teams and on the TV show in some ways as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, yes, Robin's in charge. So the woman archaeologist professor who was clearly drawn like a J. Scott Campbell Danger Girl character, like I think literally she appeared in Danger Girl. Do we know anything about her at all? Not at this point in the comic. She has one further appearance after this, and it's in like an annual or one off. 
she exists in this comic purely for the very tortured joke of her name and having very large breasts. Yeah, so she just exists to get turned into Annie Dowd. That's it. Yes. Nina Dowd to turn into Mighty and Dowd. That's it. That's the only... That's just like... I literally... I kept rereading it thinking I'd missed something. It's just the thing. If you're going to be sexist, at least have it like make sense. You know? This doesn't even make sense. Yeah. She has one further appearance after this, and I had to look this up because I didn't want to read the next issue. (laughs) Although, I did pick up this comic book when it came out, and I remembered not thinking of it horribly at the time. I wasn't picking up a ton of comic books. I think I was in my very early 20s when this came out, like either 20 or 21. And yeah, I just didn't have a ton of money and also was just working and going to shows and adjusting to living with a bunch of roommates, you know, that kind of stuff. But I had started picking up Grant Morrison's Justice League at that Mm -hmm. point. And so I was reading that and then this came out and I was like, oh, I like these characters fine. I like Peter David's writing. And I didn't pick up any more issues of it, so clearly I didn't love it. But I didn't remember it being bad, so I think I must have enjoyed it at the time. (laughs) You live, you learn. I mean, hopefully, yeah. It's such a, of its time, like, is is this all printed on glossy paper through and through, right? Like, you you can tell, like, it looks like it was created for glossy paper. And so much coloring from that period is so bad. And like, they didn't know what they were doing yet. Like, I can't blame the colorists of this era for being bad because like, it's like blaming Alexander Graham Bell for having bad sound quality. (laughs) It's like, they're figuring it out right then. Yeah, they're adjusting to the new technology. They're adjusting to the era of comic books that are coming out right now. Like, I, I, rem- I think when I picked this up, part of my feeling towards it was, well, I haven't really been reading that many comic books right now. I still <laughs> like comic books. And I guess this is what comic books look like right now. Mm. This is just kind of standard. I think this is a different end of standard, but like there were other comics coming out right then that looked a lot like this. Oh, absolutely. A lot. Yeah, totally. This was... This wasn't house style, but house style was influenced by this very heavily to the point where all that, all that shit was so ugly. Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me a lot of like, I know you're a big fan of 80s glam metal. I am. (laughs) Yes. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of in the early 80s, the production style you would get for glam metal where it's really glossy and overproduced and they're adjusting to new technology. It. It takes some adjusting to, but there's like such a specific sound to that era that if you judge it by the standards of later music or earlier music, it's it's kind of hard to appreciate it on its own merits. Right. Like I'm thinking specifically of the Def Leppard album Hysteria. I love Hysteria. I do, too. But I feel like it is so overproduced. Like that, like what Mutt Lang did to that album, I would love so much to hear like a stripped down version of that mm-hmm. album that was done with like the glam rock production styles of the late 70s. And I right. feel like that is what those songs were kind of written towards. They Yeah, they weren't writing for it yet. Yeah, no, I get it. The, the thing to me, though, is, is that the contemporary production is so much more glossy on everything, including where it shouldn't be, that I'm like listening to a band that wants to sound like Sabbath that can't sound like Sabbath because it's produced like the year is, you know, 2020 and it shouldn't sound like that. I want it to be dirty. Send it back. I know what you need. You need you need the grit in there. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I feel like where people, I don't think, judge a lot of like glam metal fairly is that they're judging it by metal standards and kind of ignoring the glam, which is kind of the roots of a lot of that music. Yes. Yes. Where kind of, I think, the focus belongs. Anyway, I kind of lost the thread of what I was trying to say there. I definitely don't think this comic is as good as Def Leppard's Hysteria, but I do worry that I'm being unnecessarily harsh on it and maybe judging it by the wrong standards. For more of my thoughts on glam metal, you can read an essay that I just wrote about Peacemaker on women write about comics, and it links to a piece I wrote about the works of David Lee Roth. So, but yeah, like, that's the thing on a certain level, like, I think perhaps if we were younger, perhaps we would appreciate this comic as camp in some way that you and I are not capable of enjoying it as because to us, it's just bad. Yeah. And I keep trying to find different contexts that it's like, well, maybe if I view it through this lens and the closest I can get to that is I think it was successful for doing what it was trying to do. I think it hit the audience that it was trying to hit, which was 13 year olds who were 13 in 1998 and were reading it as it came out. And so by those standards, I guess good job, but maybe (laughs) don't have your only female character be a boob joke. Yeah. That's it. It's not a good one. It's if it was a good boob joke, I could live with it. And it's not even good. And it doesn't, it's not even clear what's happening. Like I literally was like, what is happening? I had to look up what was happening. First of all, she is the first human to be granted new gods abilities from new Genesis. Like, so the machine morphed her into a new god which I only know from looking it up on Wikipedia. I'm not even sure if it comes up in her only other appearance. But the power that it gave her is she has hypnotic boobs. But they're too big, so she falls over. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the thing, right? There is a way you could do that and have it be good. This isn't that. No. You know, but speaking of the new gods, like, you you know, you have this appearance of the super cycle, which I'm always going to get a little bit excited about because Mm -hmm. Jack Kirby Fourth World is like literally my life. And he ends it by saying, next, the boy's wild ride or Splutter Mountain, which made me think of the Mountain of Judgment from Mm -hmm. the kid book of the Fourth World series, which is Jimmy Olsen. And he's hanging out with the Newsboy Legion and they get chased by the Mountain of Judgment, which is I mean, the Mountain of Judgment is like, is this my parents like this? (laughs) But it's you know, it's like a big moving base it's a beautiful Kirby machine, as all Kirby machines are. And so I think it's clear that they're trying to evoke that, but I'm not quite sure why. But I guess there's a connection between those both being the kid books of the series. Yeah. And they're like negative connections between properties that I think we both like more than this, that mm-hmm. this is in the same conversation with. Like you had mentioned the fact that no women in the first issue of this, other than the boob joke, no mm-hmm. women in the first episode of Young Justice, and no women in the first Teen Titans appearance. It's the three sidekicks that were Kid Flash, Aqualad, and Robin. And then in the very next issue, you get Wonder Girl joins. In Young Justice, in the very next storyline, you get Miss Martian joining. And then yeah. in this, I think Arrowette, who Artemis is based on, ends up joining. I don't know if it's the next issue. I know it happens pretty early on. Gotcha. There are all of these parallels. And I think this is like, it's at least interesting to look at this era's version of the Teen Titans. Because mm-hmm. this came out just a couple years after the new Teen Titans run ended. And I think this was looked on as being kind of the replacement for it. And for the new era, this isn't your dad's new Titans, you know? No, 
revealing my own Superboy ignorance, Leather Jacket earring Superboy predates this by a while, right? About four or five years. So not yeah. that long. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't even credit it for that because I was going to say, like, I know for a lot of people, like, that's like the Superboy can look that they just really gravitate towards. Uh huh. But you can't even credit it to this, though. I want to comment on the sort of subtitle of the issue, which is Young, Just Us. They have this whole back and forth with a reporter about it's, you know, the Justice League Junior, like, no, it's just us, just us. This is referencing like language used by Black activists about the lack of freedom in the white supremacist system that is America. Like this is referencing saying there is no justice, there's just us. And I'm like, can you say that? Because this isn't a, this is not earned. They're just turning it into an Abbott and Costello routine and not, and not a good one at that. Yeah, yeah. This is not an earned reference. No. You were talking about how the mighty endowed was not even a good joke. It started off being a different not good joke. Oh. When I looked into the character, that is the second draft of that. Initially, they had pitched it that she was going to be Professor Sachs Contain. And so she was transformed into Sex Kitten. And that's why she has like cat's ears and whiskers still in the book, despite that having nothing to do with her character. But that's not explained at all. And also, that's not a name like Sax Contain is not a name (laughs) that a person would have. So turning that into a pun on Sex Kitten, it just doesn't work as a joke. Although bringing it back to 80s glam metal, Tawny Contain, Contain is a stage name of an actual human um, performer. I very much remember her dancing around on the hoods of those cars for uh, Robert Plant. White Snake. Yes, oh, well, he, White Snake. Was that not Robert Plant's band? Robert Coverdale. It's, it's Cover, David Coverdale. David Coverdale. Or Dang as Robert it. Plant calls him, David Cover version. Um, oh, mm-hmm. zing. So now, now, boys, you're both talented. Please call it off. I would like there at some point to be a movie called White Snake Moan that is about David Coverdale being changed to a radiator. also know why Red Tornado is the randomly assigned adult chaperone in the first season of Young Justice. Yep. And there's like little Easter eggs like that, that I think are within the book that it's like, oh, like the the super cycle even just is like, oh, you did something interesting with this thing. But good good for you, you know. (laughs) But honestly, the whole presence of Red Tornado, it makes sense as a story device. But if you're trying to establish any kind of theme with the Titans, Having them have a chaperone at all, it kind of doesn't work. Like, with the exception of I do love the Mr. Jupiter years. (laughs) But this is not the richest and therefore most trustworthy android in the world. It's just a guy. Yeah. And especially if you're going to even try to misappropriate the language of not justice, just us, and use it for, like, youth rights or some vague notion of teen independence. It still doesn't work if you have a adult chaperone. Yeah. It undercuts the kind of raison d'etre of the book, which is kids figuring shit out for themselves. And it undercuts the fantasy of the reader, because the fantasy of the reader is that they get to have the dependence from the adults, which Mm -hmm. they're not even granted. 
I actually also thought that was kind of a, a strange choice in the show as well. I was like, kids don't want to have to see themselves having a chaperone, even though they actually would. Like, what's this? This is supposed to be a fantasy, a power fantasy. I feel like with the cartoon, it does actually kind of just be like, but since we do need to have one, it's one who is emotionally distant and cut off and is a robot. So it treats him almost like a loophole around the idea of adult supervision. But yeah, I, I see your point. Why have him there at all? Well, you know, there's a lot more to dunk on in this book, and I'm sure we'll get around <laughs> to that. Indeed. But I think most of it, for me at least, is going to come up in the minutiae. Are you ready to move into the minutiae, or was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we do? I am ready. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. All right, so you know what? I think this is probably going to be a difficult category for both of us, but favorite panel. <laughs> so I have the sarcastic answer and the real answer. The sarcastic answer is on page 21. There's a panel where there is a very large lettering of E which is the uh, sound of the super cycle taking flight. And it is actually a perfectly nice panel in part because a lot of space is taken up by the lettering and it has decent composition and I don't have to see any weird mutant baby heads. Fair enough. I'll allow it. But upon rereading it, that first page, like as much as it's fucking heinous, it is a very memorable panel, that first page. So I might have to give it there. I actually had, I think, the first page as one of my choices. For me, it comes down to two. I think, frankly, all of the first three pages work a little bit better than most of the book, just because they take place in dreams. So mm. any of the anatomical hard choices that were made by this issue can be kind of forgiven if they are how an adolescent views themselves in a dream. And the Batman panel, I think, was pretty fun and interesting, and maybe set up some false expectations for the issue. But uh, I think that one actually worked pretty well. Yeah. My other choice is kind of a weird one. It's on page 13, and it is when Ace Atchison from CDTV is attempting to interview Fightin' Mad, because everybody has to have pun names, the MTV stand-in VJ news reporter guy. Mm. He's wearing a terrible outfit. He is approaching the camera, but that is the panel in which it looks the most like it might be drawn by Evan Dorkin. And there's a guy in a plaid oh. shirt in the background too. And I was like, oh, if I can pretend that this is Evan Dorkin doing like a parody of J. Scott Campbell, then this is kind of fun. I like this panel. Okay. It reminds me of reading Dork. I see it. Any other panels you wanted to talk about? No. Okay. <laughs> but shout out to the letterer, whoever did the E. Yeah, let's see if we can find the name of the letterer in here. Ken Lopez. Thank you, Ken Lopez. Nice job. The lettering is fine throughout, actually. So thank you, Ken Lopez. I mean, I think in part he was able to do such a good job because he just had less work to do than a lot of the comics that I've read recently. Mm. There is just literally not that much there, there in this comic book. <laughs> it went by very quickly, so that was nice. Like, the, the food was terrible, but at least the portions <laughs> were small. 
like I looked at the page that looked like it was the most dense in terms of captions and dialogue. And I actually went through and counted all of the words and there were less than 100 words on that page. Then I went back and compared that with Brave and the Bold 54 and each of the first five pages has between two and 400 words on it. So there's just less to read here. It's interesting because I I think of Peter David as being wordy, but not like Claremont level wordy, you know, Mm -hmm. Claremont is like kind of like a class of his own. But yeah, this was a very quick read other than having to reread because something made literally no sense with that woman whatsoever. Yeah. So, yeah, I think David is he's wordy in terms of dialogue. He's very dialogue heavy writer, I think. But. I'm not used to seeing as much in the captions from him, and maybe that's part of it. When you compare him to like the stuff we're covering with J.M. DeMatteis right now in The Defenders, oh oh my God, so much exposition. Yeah. So this, you know, it was a a quick read. So good job on that score. (laughs) I think there's probably a little bit more to dig into here, sartorially speaking. Which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? So it's actually Mighty and Dowd's leggings because they have some Kirby circuitry on the side of them. Mm-hmm. And having some Kirby circuitry on your outfit will redeem most sins. The all Lycra getup here, I should point out for folks who weren't alive at the time, was not in fashion <laughs> in that moment at all. But at least it had some Kirby circuits. So... Yeah. Yeah. What we could see of her what outfit, because they <laughs> they did make a point that she you never actually see her huge breasts. They are a sight gag that you don't actually see. They are always obscured from vision. Yeah. Um, but what you can see of her outfit is not a bad outfit, honestly, especially when compared to what other characters were wearing. <laughs> I got to call out. It's not a look that I think is necessarily a good one, but it certainly is an interesting one and one that sets this book in a pretty specific era. Superboy. Wow. That's a lot of belts. He's wearing two belts around his waist, and then he's wearing <laughs> a third belt around his thigh for no apparent reason. Look, he's an X-Force, so like <laughs> that's just the law. He's also an X-Force. They don't appear to have pouches on any of the belts, though. That was what I found confusing. Hmm. Okay, so then they're part of his new leather look, I guess. That's my next best guess. He's got the jacket. Yeah, it's a confusing look. It's a, I think, very era appropriate look, both for comics and perhaps for regular fashion. I myself was probably not on what you would consider the cutting edge of 1998 fashion at the time. (laughs) Gosh, do you remember how you were dressing back then? As a person who was going to clubs back then, none of these are particularly relevant to anything anybody like. I mean, I was not going to like fucking Rodeo Drive shit. I'm talking about like New York, like scenester kid stuff. Like, no, there's nothing here that would be at the limelight. So for good or bad, you know? Sure. I think at the time I I was trying to think back to like, okay, what was I wearing then? And it was like, oh, not relevant. It was like, for me, it was, I think, mostly just ironic T-shirts that I cut the sleeves off of and would maybe wear with a blazer. I had one that said soccer mom on it that I was a big fan (laughs) of. Uh, I think mostly just because I had the one liner prepped that's like, you're not a soccer mom. I said like, no, but I mean, if I wear an ACDC shirt, that doesn't mean I'm Angus Young. I'm just a fan. (laughs) I still need my ACDC shirt to wear to Pride so that only old people can understand the joke. (laughs) 
Well done. To be like, litmus test. Okay. I'm getting it in like some bi-pride colors. But no, 1998, I was a goth scene kid. And I would not have invited any of these folks to go to something with me. Let's be real. Like Superboy's jacket is like leaning towards something. But like, no, you know what? It's okay. Superboy can come despite whatever is happening with the belt. Superboy. He's taken a big swing. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. It was pretty soon after this that I started bartending. And there was a guy who always wore multiple belts into the bar. (laughs) And we all made fun of him. Oh, well, he wanted us to call him Punk Rock Sean, and that just wasn't going to happen. We called him Shawnee Two Belts. But on a certain level, I, I do appreciate that level of commitment to the bit, you know? Yeah. You know, the thing with this Robin outfit is like, we understand that this is, you know, them trying to say we're not going to do the shorts, but it is still like a tights and leotard kind of thing. I don't like the sort of buckle laces on the, ch- it's just, it's just unattractive. <sighs> Yeah, don't put a picture of laces up there if he's not going to have the lace shirt. It was like when I worked at Arby's and they made me wear a baseball hat with a picture of a cowboy hat on it. Like, (laughs) if you want me to wear a cowboy hat, give me a fucking cowboy hat. If you want Robin to have a laced up uh, bodice, then, uh, you know, give him some fucking laces. Yeah. You know, the hair cutout thing for Impulse is very much like, you know, all throughout the 90s was the era of the head sock. So that makes sense that they'd go that route. The goggles, I'm okay with them. I did go through a phase where I did maybe wear some goggles. I I had a scooter at the time, so I had an excuse to wear the goggles. But despite the fact that I was using them for transportation, I certainly didn't put them away when I could have and would maybe push them up to my forehead. Nice. It's a good headband. Yeah. Plus, it maybe made people think I might be friends with a Digimon. Yeah. If you are a speedster, you probably should wear goggles, regardless of whether or not they look cool. Like, it feels like you would need them. Yeah. Safety first. Every teen superhero comic book, not technically a Teen Titan issue, but yeah, Teen Titan adjacent, has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad and who did you have as your Beast Boy? So I really struggled with this because I find them to all kind of be on par with each other in terms of just having a couple of basic jokes and not much development or interiority. So I'm going to have to give the Aqualad award to Red Tornado because Mm. at least he makes a good sled. Fair enough. And as for my Speedy, the worst of the Titans, I think I'm going to have to say it is Tim Drake because I expected better. Mm, Yeah, I think that's fair. I actually had him as my best just because I liked his dream the best. And Mm, yeah, he annoyed me probably less than most of the other characters. And then just kind of by default, because I don't think any of them did a particularly good job. I had Superboy as my worst just because I did like that Impulse sometimes thought in rebuses, which reminded me of being sick and staying home and watching classic concentration with the little pictograms. So I enjoyed that. And I liked that he stuck his head in a giant crystal. So uh, (laughs) that left Superboy as my Beast Boy. Yeah. I mean, at least Impulse is the only reason why anything happens in this comic. Mm -hmm. So even though he's irritating, I couldn't make him my worst because he is 
inciting action. Yeah. And I feel like each of them also had a worst line that they had that made me like kind of cringe a little bit. His was when he was riding Red Tornado like a surfboard and he just said, surfing dude. And it's like, well, that that's nothing. That's like a placeholder bit of dialogue. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make me cringe the way it did when Robin said huge tracts of land, which I'm like, that's it's the dumbest Monty Python reference. And yeah, who is that for? Like, there's so much about the way this comic was written that it reminds me of like when you go see a kid's movie that is not a good kid's movie, but they try to put humor in there that's like, well, this will be for the grownups who have to take their kids to see it. But like, you don't have to read the comic with your kid. So like, no, I, I, I don't understand. It is neither fish nor fowl in a lot of ways. That Well, when I was 13, that's when I discovered Monty Python. Mm. So I think, you know, for obviously British kids are growing up with it. But I think in America, that might be the age where a lot of American kids were first encountering Monty Python. So that might have felt like a fresh reference to... That's fair, I guess. I started watching Monty Python when I was like six or seven, I think. My grandfather really liked it. Uh, Yeah. And it was on PBS when I was growing up because, well, if it's British, it's got to be educational. I know. It's so silly. It made so much more sense than Benny Hill being on PBS, which was also the case. Yeah. Anything British has to be high class, ergo educational, ergo okay Mm -hmm. to watch. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I got to watch Monty Python, but it doesn't make a lick of sense. This is a difficult category for an entirely different reason than Best Panel is, just because there is too much to choose from here in some ways. But what timestamps did you find in this book? Far and away, my favorite timestamp is Hanson Stinks, as graffitied on the chest of Red Tornado and never actually removed. Oh, sorry, Hanson bites. Hanson bites. Mm. The reality is Hanson does bite. And so I realized that making that joke essentially makes me a teenage boy of the era as well. <laughs> but like, what are you going to do? Yeah, fair enough. I honestly, the joke in this book that landed the best for me was the news anchor thinking to himself, I like Hanson. Yeah. I was like, that's a genuine moment of levity in the book that I really that's appreciated. True. I got a chuckle. Yeah. Yeah, so much about this book. We've already talked about just this entire book is a timestamp. Yeah. The tone, the art, the uh, cynical, nihilistic comedy of it. It's just so 1998. But you do have you have the Hanson reference. You have a tiny Mystery Science Theater 3000 reference that is on the can of spray paint. There is mm. a picture of Tom Servo and under it, it says MST3K. I missed that. Wow. 98 was the last year that the original run of MST3K ran. So you have that. It's put in there apropos of nothing. But uh, it was nice to see a little tiny picture of Tom Servo. (laughs) I found it. That's wacky. Yeah. You have CDTV being the stand in for MTV. Just putting you back to a time when the word CD was synonymous with music. And where MTV was a thing that people had feelings about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was definitely a timestamp. And yeah, the ad for Jinko Glow in the Dark sneakers on the back page. I know that's not technically part of the text, but... It is. It is part of the text. It really does set the scene. Like, all of the ads in this were just so, like... I want to see some others, because I couldn't. Uh, let's see. There is a computer 
animated comic book called The Dome Ground Zero that there's an ad for. I don't know to what extent you can see that. Yeah, I can. I've never heard of such a thing. Okay. Me either. And apparently, I think it was written by Dave Gibbons. There's an ad for another comic book called Guns of the Dragon, which looks like it has Colonel Sanders fighting a dinosaur. With Wolverine. Yeah, that's a fun team up. That's what's happening. And then, yeah, most of them are in-house ads for other DC comics, but uh, the Jinko glow-in-the-dark sneakers ad is just a thing of beauty. It's like the spirit of the comic made concrete into one page. In all of the comic books that we cover, there is one character who acts, or rather overacts, in the most dramatic fashion. The president of the drama club, if you will. In this issue, who did you have as your president of the drama club? Robin, which is like his job in general. Mm -hmm. What ways did he demonstrate that particularly in this issue, did you find? Um, You know, his level of irritation and frustration with Impulse almost made it seem as if this wasn't completely what he would expect from any interaction with Impulse. So it's like you knew what you were getting into and you you chose this life. (laughs) So you must be okay with it. So you probably shouldn't complain as much. That was my main thoughts about it. And his dream was the most, well, I don't know if it was the most dramatic, but I enjoyed it the most. So Yeah, I I was kind of torn. I almost went with Superboy just because he did have that tendency to kind of over narrate his actions and over explain what he was doing, continually Mm -hmm. referencing his tactile telekinesis to the point where the other characters chide him for it. Yeah, they break the fourth wall to chide him for talking about it Mm -hmm. too much. Yeah, they break the fourth wall entirely too much for my taste in this comic. I am a firm believer that the fourth wall is by and large a load-bearing wall, (laughs) and this comic clearly has other opinions on that. And he also does do that thing where there was something about the way that he was posing while running a comb through his hair. Yeah. It's the panel where he looks the most like John Cena. And it it just there was something about that pose that struck me as very dramatic. But you also raise a very good point about Robin. He has the angstiest dream, I think, which there is something to be said for. And uh, there is also just something about maybe this is just when I was growing up. But uh, there is something that is inherently not necessarily the president of the drama club, but a very person in the drama club move to be quoting Monty Python badly at any opportunity. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm like also very close in age to you. So yes, might still be true today. I would love to hear for some younger folks. Does the president of your drama club continue to quote (laughs) Monty Python? We literally got a card game at drama camp that involved Monty Python in the card game. Oh, wow. Yeah. Listeners, write in, let us know. I've been looking forward to this one. Let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. What names for bands were you able to find in the text of this issue? Well, first off, we obviously are going to have to have at least a little bit of um, Mighty Endowed. I presume that this is a contemporary retro glam metal band that consists entirely of drag queens. Wow. 
I kind of love that. When you first said the name, my mind immediately went to Ska. I assumed <laughs> that just from the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Oh. But uh, no, I think you are absolutely right about what that band is. Yeah. A contemporary glam rock drag queen band, The Mighty Endowed. That's pretty darn good. Thank you. My first choice was uh, Undiluted Panic. <laughs> it seems like a more focused jam band, maybe. Yes, I was going to say, they're clearly playing at Wetlands, so I get it. Yeah. But like, but they're, you know, they don't noodle around. They're, they're there yeah. for a reason. You know, they, they play very efficient 20-minute uh, jam sets. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. I've definitely seen them, their name on a poster or two. Who else did you have? The Horror, which he oh. repeats several times. It could conceivably be The Horror, The Horror, The Horror. Oh, I think that one might work better. Also, less likely to be an actual band. I had to look up a couple. There really isn't a band called The Horror? No, there's a band called The Horrors, plural, not oh. The Horror. Nice loophole there. Yeah, but uh, because, you know, we got The Horrors, The Horrors, The Horror. It could be like, it's like Dark, Dark, Dark. Who are really good. People should Google them. Um, so I'm going to presume that the horrors also play the singing saw and are really goth. Excellent. I, I had one Happy Harbor, I think, mm. would be actually a pretty good. I think they're probably just from the era of this comic. I'm going to put them as like Midwest emo band probably were inspired by sunny day real estate that kind mm -hmm. of era of emo. But uh, yeah, Happy Harbor. I, I think there's something there. I have to say, Hub, I feel like there was a some moment in the podcast where an earlier episode where you had to explain to people the different definitions of emo, and I just felt really seen. So oh. <laughs> I know exactly. I'm like, yeah, no, we know which emo you mean. You mean Jawbreaker. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and that was actually, I just had the two band names. Did you have another one? No, that was all. All right. So of those four, we have The Horror. We have... Undiluted Panic, The Mighty Endowed, and Happy Harbor. Which of those sounds like the best band name to you? I'm going to have to stay with The Mighty Endowed. I think you're right. I think that is absolutely the right choice. We will run that up on the Twitter poll and see how The Mighty Endowed fare. Woohoo. It's nice to be able to get some uh, lemonade out of that lemon of a boob joke. Exactly. Well done. Yeah, yeah, like you can make the boob joke if it's funny and also has like a feminist lens with it. If neither, then like, what are you even doing? And clearly that whole character was written around and so much of the issue was written towards that one throwaway, not good boob joke. I know. Don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of tortured writing around <laughs> shitty jokes. I mean, yeah. I'm me, but yeah. you got to do it with some degree of panache. Yeah. I think it's time that we took this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? There is the secret agent guy, I don't remember which of their names, who literally tells Impulse, no, you little idiot, don't stick your head in. And then there's the Abracoom. I mean, He's literally telling Impulse, don't do the thing that you do, but mm -hmm. he's not wrong. No, he is not wrong. Impulse is indeed a little idiot. So well noted. I had a couple that I enjoyed. I mentioned <laughs> it earlier. 
Impulse, actually, having the thought bubble when he is thinking about Robin, where he has the rebus with a picture of a screw and a picture of a baseball. Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for a rebus. I like the screwball thing. That was fun to me. But I think my favorite is probably, I think I would say, the other joke that landed well in this comic. Not entirely fair. I got a slight chuckle out of the MacGuffin University thing. Sure. But when Red Tornado explains why he was able to wake up, however, in the past few minutes, I have begun to believe that perhaps, just perhaps, there is some small aspect of human feeling left to me. Superboy asks why, and Red Tornado continues, because I find that you three annoy the hell out of me. I feel an urge to smack you, particularly impulse, and for that, I am indebted. Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah. It's what the comic is based around, really. Yeah. And it works. It's a kind of funny joke. It's like the opposite of the whole way that Watchmen is concluded, right? You know, like, well, since you have complicated feelings with respect to your mom being raped, I guess I won't blow up the world, I guess. (laughs) Similarly here. Yep. So I think the pull quote here is uh, Young Justice. It's just like Watchmen. All the way. Well, Ilana, I have just one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1998, and the month of our Lord, September, what was Aqualad probably up to? Ilana, Wapoot! Well, what's really convenient about this is that it's 1998 and it's New York City, so I can tell you what he was up to because I was there. Whoa! That's the joy of these like contemporary-ish, I guess it's contemporary-ish, <laughs> really not anymore, uh, comics. So at least I can tell you what a guy who told me he was Aqualad was up to. He said he was from oh. Atlantis, and at the time I assumed he meant Atlanta. But since then, I've met more Southerners, so I'm pretty sure it was actually Atlantis, and this was actually Mm. Aqualad. Yeah, yeah. So we're at an all-ages zine show at the legendary punk club ABC No Rio on the Lower East Side, and I'm going up and I'm talking to this guy because he's got zines that are printed on like a waterproof paper, and they're trying to explain to all of the like vegan straight-edge kids that we shouldn't be pescatarian. We need to go full-on vegan because he is a friend to the fish. And, you know, I'm not even a pescatarian, but like he's got a thing and I'm going to just smile and play along. And like, I appreciate his enthusiasm that he is having for the subject. And once I start to understand the fish as his friends, I do really begin to consider my own consumption habits. While we're talking, I see a couple of people who are older than me who show up and they're sort of the like good government types, activists, a little older than us, maybe wearing like a little bit more of grown-up clothing, but they're definitely taking an interest in in what he's writing about. They themselves are doing some water conservation activism. In They were asking him if he might be interested in doing some canoe tours that they have begun leading to help raise awareness of water contamination in the Gowanus Canal. This group go on to name themselves the Gowanus Dredgers, and their advocacy is part of why we were ended up cleaning the Gowanus Canal more in recent years. But unfortunately, Aqualad explains he cannot join them because uh, the Gowanus has gonorrhea and chlamydia. This is not a joke. And um, as a sea-strengthened lad, he would not be oh. able to safely swim in those waters 
without getting sick himself. So he politely declines, but him sharing that story really helped bring some additional urgency to the advocacy of the Gowanus Dredgers Club. So anyway, we're going to end the evening at Legendary Club Wetlands, which is probably where that jam band earlier, what were they called? Undiluted Panic. Yeah, so Undiluted Panic, like they were usually playing there, but there were regularly hardcore shows as well happening at Wetlands on occasion. And so we're going to go to Wetlands and we're going to check out the band H2O as well as Hot Water Music (laughs) to sort of finish off the evening. Oh my, that is extraordinary. I feel like I was just in a a little time capsule. It is so weird to be talking about an era that I actually remember. Right? (laughs) For this. I I remember seeing H2O on flyers. Well. When I was going to Syracuse in the 90s, there was a pretty decent hardcore scene up there. That was where Earth Crisis was from. Right, right. And so, yeah. Wow. Really set that way back machine. My friend Mark, who is in full-blown chaos, said that he actually saw H2O at Wetlands. So I confirmed factually that this is a thing that could have happened. Well, that honestly does tempt me to make Aqualad visit Portland around that era. Mm -hmm. And uh, he could help my friend start his zine, Stop Starting Bands. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I know that zine. Really? That was my friend Brian. And could have seen me be the onstage dancer for a band called Hub, uh, which was, I think that might have been around this time. So were they named after you or are you named after them? We met because they were named that. And then I was introduced to them through a roommate and they're like, oh, man, your name's Hub. We're named Hub. You should come dance badly on stage while we play. (laughs) And I was 21 and I was like, yes. That is what should happen. (laughs) And so it briefly was what happened. Yeah. Goodness. But that is not what Aqualad was, in fact, up to in September of 1998. He wasn't in Portland. He spent some time, as you mentioned, in New York. But other than that, he was, well, feeling kind of bummed out because he had just found out that a tribe called Quest had broken up. Mm. He saw them uh, very early in the month. They were doing their farewell tour with the Beastie Boys, actually, who were touring for Intergalactic. Yeah. Um, But soon after he saw that concert, Tribe Called Quest announced that they were breaking up. So Aqualad, he started listening to some new hip hop and was really struck by a new album that had just come out called Aquemini by Outkast. For obvious reasons, he gravitated (laughs) towards it and was really struck by it. He was like, oh, man, this is good. This is really good. Specifically, the first single that was released off the album, a song called Rosa Parks, struck his fancy. And Aqualad, while very learned, very well read in a number of regards, can be a little bit naive about our surface dweller politics. He doesn't Mm. necessarily understand them. He isn't familiar with all of our history. And so he started researching who Rosa Parks was. and started reading about America's history of segregation and was appropriately horrified. In those readings, he stumbled across reading about uh, George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama. And he was looking all of this up on his uh, sorceress Atlantean search engine. And as he was just reading about what a piece of shit George Wallace was, he ended up saying just aloud to himself, That guy is so full of shit. And a little piece of 
the search engine's magic ended up reaching out to the surface world, was activated by those thoughts, and that is why, on September 13th, 1998, George Wallace died of septic shock. <laughs> because he was, in fact, that full of shit. And Aqualad uh, made that metaphor manifest literally, unintentionally, with his words. And that is what Aqualad was up to in September of 1998. Accidentally killing George Wallace. Good job. <laughs> Yay. The, the bad George Wallace, I want to clarify, because yeah, there, the, there's a very funny comedian George Wallace. No, I'm I, I'm regretting not having talked with him more about Rudy Giuliani because we really could have avoided a lot of problems that I had a more in-depth conversation around the local politics of New York. Damn. Oh, missed opportunity. You had no way of knowing. True. I mean, I thought he was from Atlanta, so who could have expected? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking with you about this comic that I did not have a great time reading. Likewise, as a, as a listener, it is going to be surreal listening to myself, which I will do. And it is an honor. I have finally joined the ranks of such luminaries as Sarah Century and Miles Stokes. I've arrived. Oh, well, I'm so glad you were able to. Thank you so much. You were a lovely guest. If people would like to find more of your work, where should they be looking and uh, what should they be looking for? So I've got my podcast, Graphic Policy Radio. I generally do one episode a week if I can. And uh, the episodes are all very clearly labeled. So you could go back and listen to Hub come on my podcast to talk about Deathstroke a couple of years ago, for example, or more recently come on my podcast to talk about Young Justice season four. So yeah, Graphic Policy Radio on all the different podcast platforms. If you happen to be into Star Trek, Deep Space Dive, my Star Trek DS9 podcast is also located within Graphic Policy Radio. I also just had that piece I mentioned on Peacemaker at Women Write About Comics, and I'm hopefully going to have a follow-up about Peacemaker queerness and glam metal that someone should pick up and run. But you can find out all of my Michigas if you follow me on Twitter, which is E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Yeah, you guys have your homework assignment, and you should do yourself a favor and check out all of that stuff. Graphic Policy is a great podcast, and I like listening to it, and I had a great time being on it last week as mm -hmm. we're recording this. I think that's when it was. Yeah. Time, as we've discussed, I believe Nietzsche said is a real shit show. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was in many ways the inspiration for this episode was uh, being reintroduced to the Young Justice cartoon. And if you're going to consume one piece of Young Justice branded media, I would highly recommend that it be that cartoon and not this comic book. Indeed. Yeah, it's held up pretty well in a lot of ways, I think. Certainly enjoyable, unlike this comic. Well, and honestly, even if you just want to watch it and look for Easter eggs, like seeing a cartoon version of Brom Stick piloting a Mr. Twister robot is just like, oh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Graphic Policy, as I said, it's a great podcast. You should definitely check it out and seek out Ilana's writing wherever you can, because she's darn good at it. If you would like to get into touch with me and Corey, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in uh, all kinds of the socials media. You can uh, find us there if you poke around a bit. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. <laughs> we'll be there. We always have been. Ilana, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this next week? 
This week, I'm going to be kickstarting their hearts through the power Ooh. of Motley Crue. Excellent. I think I'm going to be digging through my old zines and looking for shit. That was, uh, that was very inspiring. So, uh, yeah, we'll be in your hearts having a pretty nice time. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that is there as a thank you for supporting the show and making it possible for us to keep doing the show. So thank you for that. If you'd like to support the show in a non-monetary way, you could, uh, you know, leave us a review or uh, you could, uh, I don't know, talk to somebody. Is that still something people do? Mm Hmm. Sounds yeah, no way to know for sure. Sounds implausible, but you can oh, give it a try. Talking to people, that's the thing you do when you have a podcast. Yeah, yeah, but I, I understand there is a way to do it without recording it. I haven't attempted mm, it in at least a couple eh. of years, but theoretically, I think it could be done. <laughs> but you know what? Why don't you start a podcast about this podcast? Like, do a podcast where you write a summary of each of the summaries that I've written of each issue and then try not to set that podcast between two mirrors or else you'll create a recursive loop that could destroy humanity. But if you don't do that, then it could be a pretty fun uh, way to pass the time and spread the word. Sort of like a podcast version of SZ uh, or maybe not. That's fine. We're going to we're going to leave all the postmodernism behind us now. I am sorry I missed the reference. It's okay. No, it's like, like we're going to stop thinking about Ilana's college years right now. <laughs> but I also understand if you don't feel like setting up a strange podcasting Matrushka doll, <laughs> you are under no obligation to do so, provided you just leave us a review someplace. We've actually gotten a few reviews that say uh, even Doug Flutie was surprised at what they had done. If you want to <laughs> leave a review that says that... I, it, it would continue to delight me. So uh, who wouldn't want to do that? So there you got you got your action items. You support this show. You support graphic policy. You find Ilana's other work and check that out. And uh, yeah, until next week, keep your Jinko sneakers a glowing. Bye. Oh, <laughs> my